This is Mark Steele, producer of Living Through the Word. Usually when a podcast releases a Throwback Thursday episode, they release a classic from their vault. We really can't do that because we only have 10 episodes recorded. But what we do have is a collection of sermons and teachings from past diocesan events that previously were distributed across uh, various platforms and locations. So we thought it would be a good idea to release these here week by week as an opportunity to rediscover resources from the past. The first sermon we're going to release in this series is a presentation from the Reverend Canon Dr. Ashley Knoll from our 2018 Synod. This is the first in a series, The Divine Allurement of God. We chose Dr. Knoll's sermons first because he will be a chaplain at our upcoming clergy retreat. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would be moved to love and serve Jesus today. Amen. Synods are glorious occasions where we bring out our finest, our best preachers, the beauty of our liturgy, and even the best committee work. And the sense of fellowship, wholeness of being the body of Christ gathered together can be deeply affirming. But we can forget that the chief reason why we are gathered together is that he promises to be in our midst. And he comes to affirm to comfort, to challenge, but above all, to transform. And as we begin our time together, let each of us ask, do we really want the head of our body to come afresh this weekend into our lives. In the rooms we haven't tidied up and would wish he would stay out of. But he knows that wholeness comes from deep cleansing where we need it the most and want it least. Yes. I thought it was 
trying to make me feel like a little kid again from Lost in Space. Danger, danger, Will Robinson. Hey. I was giving a lecture at the American Bible Society, and all of a sudden, in the middle of an expansive part of my talk, a cell phone started ringing. And everybody is looking around. And then it finally dawns on everybody, including me, it's my cell phone. <laughs> it's my brother. I'm sorry, call you later. But seriously, it is easy to play church and to play it well. But that's not what we're here for. We're here for a transforming God to bear up our burdens, to renew our hope, to refresh our souls, to unburden them and to charge them with renewed vision and hope and strength and perseverance. Perhaps you are different, but in my time in the parish, I was weary so often. I thought because I was doing well, hopefully I was doing well, but it is difficult. All the responsibilities, all the needs, and living by faith means living with uncertainty. And that takes a toll. And so we are gathered together this weekend not to impress each other with what incredibly wonderful spiritual giants we are and how our ministries should be the envy of everybody else here. But to let Jesus meet us where we are in our journey, individually and collectively, and to be inspired that his love sustains, that his love, not our afflictions or difficult circumstances, his love gets the last word, that he is faithful and whatever we bear, he bears us up and bears us to a better tomorrow. That we might be soft and open to him, working through all the various parts of our gathering, our worship, our instruction, our communal time, our business meetings, to minister to do what he does best. We have heard a wonderful sermon about it's our God who saves. It's our God who sustains. May we in our hearts welcome that this weekend and be surprised at his handiwork in our midst. All righty, sermon it over. The Bible tells us that the human condition is, without Jesus in our lives, that apart from God, we aren't whole. 
a piece of us is missing, an important piece, in fact, the crucial piece, the piece that seems to make sense of everything, the piece that makes sense of us, the piece that tells us who we are and why we do the things we do, even when we do not seem to want to do them. That peace that tells us what really we were made to do and which way we should go so we can. The peace that points us to true meaning and purpose of our lives, a defining moral compass to guide us to self-understanding and self-fulfillment. A peace that gives us a sense of worth that won't go away. A peace that gives us peace. We're missing that peace. That's what the Bible tells us. But we already know it. We know it deep down inside in a place where we don't like to go and never want to stay too long. We know that we know no peace on our own. We have passions that make us feel alive, but we know that they also too often take us to places we wish we had never been. We have accomplishments, but in achieving them, we know that they are too many times, well, they leave us feeling strangely hollow, unsatisfied, even empty. We have relationships, but we know that in the very midst of them, when it really counts, when we really need someone to stand with us, too often we feel only misunderstood and alone. Trapped by our own choices, pinned in by circumstances now beyond our control, we can never seem to outrun this unease deep inside us. And yet how seldom do we turn to God? It's too frightening to think that something as unknowable and uncontrollable as God Almighty holds our missing peace in his hand. In a world of false hopes and broken promises, who wants to believe in Santa Claus again? Who wants to go on the impossible quest to try to pry our missing wholeness from the most demanding authority in the universe. Who wants to try to get God to love them and come up short? Who wants to risk the ultimate rejection? Yet, in the midst of all our fears and failures, all our deeds and dreams, when we hear the Bible read, God himself stoops to make his presence felt. He whispers to our heart, I am here with you. And well, we're not so sure that's good news. After all, God by definition is all good and we instinctively know we are not. How can he not reject us? After all, so many people who should have loved us already have. We are not comforted by the news of his presence. We are disturbed by it, even threatened. The only thing we can do, we think, 
is to reject God before he can reject us. There is only one problem, though. God is not like us. Just because we reject him doesn't mean he rejects us. He is humble. He is more concerned about our needs than his honor. He refuses to leave us alone with our fear of him and our frustration with our lives. He comes to us offering us rest. Yes, God is not like us. God is gentle. He does not use his authority to settle petty scores, seizing every opportunity to give payback. He uses his power to cleanse our troubled consciences and heal our wounded souls. He holds our hand even as he uses the Bible to hold up a mirror so we, perhaps for the first time, can honestly see ourselves. And thank God he holds our hand. Because in that moment, we see what we are really running from. We see the yoke we bear, a yoke bulky and rough, with edges and angles and splinters, that does not easily conform to the contour of our shoulders. It's poor crafted design, poking and pinching, rubbing and cutting, bruising and branding our back. Yet this ill-fitting yoke is the one we have fitted for ourselves. How? The countless attempts to self-medicate our inner woundedness with ultimately empty things like achievement, pleasure, or just the mindless numbness that comes from drinking or drugs or just being too busy to think about the meaning of our lives. Isn't that the great American drug? Being too busy doing something so you don't have to reflect at how scared you are, at how meaningless it is all. We have harnessed ourselves to false hopes, and in the presence, our poor choices have tied us to a trail of repeated disappointments, broken relationships, and soul-piercing regrets. We hate our imperfections. We hate our failings. Anybody here have New Year's resolutions? Ever notice how similar they are from year to year? As Edna St. Vincent Millay said, and because it's a church, I will not do a direct quote. It's not one thing after another. It's the same blank thing over and over. We seem forever yoked to all the things about our life and indeed about ourselves that cause us not to like ourselves. This 
is what we really run from, not God, but who we have made ourselves and know we cannot unmake. We do not run from God's possible rejection of us, but our own actual rejection of ourselves. Since we do not fully love ourselves as we are, how in the world can we think God would? This deep abiding fear that we aren't really good enough to be loved, that if someone knew us as fully as God can, that's what's driving us away from God and from ourselves. This is the human condition. This is the reality of the American cultural moment. So many folks do not experience growing up healthy, committed, sticking around relationships, giving them a sense of their worth and value despite their failings. We have a cultural crisis of people who have no power to love themselves and are very scared if you use the word God, that he'll confirm about them what they secretly fear is true. What will you say? What do you say? What does your way of being church convey? What God do we proclaim? Does he have an answer for their incredible angry and feistive and determined brokenness and insecurity and lostness? Do we see the rebellion and ugliness or God's longing to rescue and to be with them? not running from sin, but letting them know God has given his son so they don't have to be defined by it. We are here because the message we want to bring is the gospel. What is the power we want to offer folks to change? The gospel. What do we want as the foundation of the fruitfulness of our ministry? The gospel. And what is the gospel according to our theological inheritance? It is the glory of God to love the unworthy. It is the glory of God 
to love the unlovely until that love transforms them so that the beloved mirrors the one who pours forth prodigally his love. Medals have to be earned. That's right and good. Love can't be earned. If it's earned, it's not love. How do we present the love of God to a sinful and rebellious world? It is so easy to suggest that they have to change in order to be worthy of it. It is so easy to use fear, shame, guilt, and duty to try to motivate them to change. But does that work? What's the one thing in all creation that gives us power to conquer sin? Anybody want to know the secret to stop sinning? I'll sell it to the highest bidder. Do I hear $500? It's very simple. Love God more. Right? But where does that love come from? How do you nurture it, grow it, strengthen it, anchor it, cultivate it? Well, according to Scripture, why do we love God? Because he first loved us. And therefore, the Anglican reformers, who are not slippery on morality, they just don't begin there. They begin with God and his love, trusting that once we encounter that unconditional power of God to love us in the midst of who we are, we will want to be with him. We will want to be like him. We want to love others like him, that his love will be catching, contagious, joyous, Anybody here had uh, teenage boys in your home? Have you ever noticed the miraculous moment when mother doesn't have to comment about the need to change the socks and the sneakers? And it might not be a good idea to wear the same shirt to school five days in a row. Now, what usually accompanies this revelation of self-motivation? The desire for relationships, right? The Anglican reformers bet the whole church on the notion that what changes people is the power of love experienced in relationship. Why did they do that? Because they understood that God wired human beings for relationship. We all know newborn babies need nourishment. They need sleep. But we've also become credibly aware in the last 50 years, they need loving interaction. 
They need skin-to-skin contact that it releases hormones soothing to both mother and child and most probably stimulating brain development in the child. We don't outgrow our need for nourishment, although we can try to postpone it if you are a road warrior. We still need our nightly sleep. And day and night, we still need to have that human touch, that sense of being loved. This came very clear to me when I was a young priest working at Grace Church in New York in the 1980s. We had a night shelter, six beds, and we had regulars. And actually three of the six men had become part of our congregation. And I mentioned to my supervisor how sad it was. Although perfectly appropriate, entirely necessary for security, still how sad it was that we had to demean them by patting them down for security before they could come into what we told them was their home. And my boss looked at me and said, Ashley, you really don't understand, do you? I said, what? That is the only time all day long they will experience human touch. We are so wired to need human interaction that a security pat down for a homeless person can be life-giving. We are so wired for relationships that someone in a highly destructive, addictive cycle can be confronted in an intervention and brought face to face with what their issue has done to the people they love, that it can break the cycle, open their eyes, and motivate them to seek help to change. We are deeply wired for relationships. Why? Because we are made in God's image. And we know that God himself is a relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the essence of God, is a relationship in say, in himself, but also for those theologians among us, pro nobis, how God is, how he reveals and shows himself to us. How does he reveal himself? Listen to Exodus 34, uh, six. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. How does God reveal himself, define himself? Lord, Lord, Adonai, the Hebrew, the Tetragrammaton, which translates roughly as I am who I am. 
That's who God is in himself, a relationship. I am who I am. I am who I am. But then I am the compassionate and gracious God. That's defining himself in relation to us. And not just the sides we want to show him, but to our wickedness and rebellion and sin. He is a God who forgives. Can you imagine the humility of Almighty God to put his name on us, to be associated with us, when he knows what we're like, and that is no impediment for his love? But you know, the good news is it's not the full story, is it? Our hearts are prone to wander. We experience spiritual Alzheimer's. We forget who we are. We take the gifts that he has given us as a sign of joy, and we turn it into a treadmill to prove to ourselves we're good enough and better than others and make ourselves and other people miserable in the process. And yet he comes and says, guys and gals, have you ever read 1 Corinthians? Have you noticed that Paul is kind of hard on the first Corinthians? He doesn't mince words. He lays it out how they're completely missing the point to the point of having incest in the church and celebrating it. But how does he begin first Corinthians? First Corinthians chapter one, starting at verse seven. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. He has just said that the Corinthians are going to be presented spot and blameless. Then he goes on to tell them how many spots God's going to have to remove. <laughs> but he wants them to know that their hope is that God will. Anybody here ever made homemade ice cream? How do you make homemade ice cream? You put ice, right? Milk and Maybe if you want French vanilla, you put some eggs, maybe some fruit. When you put it there in the tin cup, does it look delicious? Does it bother you? Why not? Because you know what all that churning is going to do. The whole point of justification by faith isn't that we get a pass and we don't have to be concerned about growing in righteousness. It's that God is committed to be at work in us until in the day, age to come, we will be pure and spotless. He knows what his love in our lives will do, what his, he is assured of making, and therefore he can love us through the mess because he knows his love revealed on the cross and made sure in the resurrection, vindicating the truth of Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf, that it will be sufficient 
so that one day our love will be as firmly fixed on him and each other as he is on us now. And that is a solid hope. And that's good news for the brokenhearted, for the sin-entrapped, for the weary minister who was given so much and has not yet seen the fruit that years of prayer have sought. His love is enough. Amen.